Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today I want to talk about a range of questions that have been raised with me quite recently and over a period of months by a number of different people in connection with what we do with our baby boys after they're born and what implications the Old Testament purification laws might have for mothers after childbirth. You'll remember that in Leviticus chapter 12, there is a bunch of uh, regulations for purification of women after childbirth. And of course, the Old Testament scriptures uh, from uh, Moses onwards required, sorry, from Abraham onwards, uh, required that the people of God uh, circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day as a mark of the covenant. And so it is occasionally a question that arises uh, today. Circumcision is not unknown. In fact, it's quite common in many cultures, including uh, many Western cultures. Uh, and uh, well-meaning and thoughtful Christians might reflect on the instructions for purification after childbirth in Leviticus 12 and wonder whether these have any implications for us as well. And there's a whole tangle of different issues here. There's uh, personal history and uh, sort of traditional practice in our own family subcultures and cultures. There are medical issues as well. And then there's all a bunch of stuff wrapped up with um, uh, religious Christian observances and uh, seeking to be faithful to the Lord and to his word. And and so this leads some people to think, well, I should circumcise my baby boys uh, surgically after childbirth. And maybe the, the stuff in Leviticus 12 has some relevance for uh, my wife or um, for me, if you are the wife, um, after childbirth. And I want to try and carve through some of this tangle and explain uh, the really quite good reasons why the questions arise and then try and tease apart some of the medical, traditional and theological or biblical uh, thinking that we might uh, take on board in relation to it. So first up, let me just remind you of what Leviticus 12 says and then say a word about circumcision and then talk about why this question arises. So Leviticus 12, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. At the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. It was a baby boy, male child. Um, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. She shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And then there's some more stuff about when the days of the purifying are completed, there are offerings to be made and so on and so forth. So what you've got here are instructions for uh, mothers after birth to be purified for a period of time and not to enter the sanctuary during that period. And for male children, only male children, to be ritually circumcised as an act of religious observance, which actually you know, goes all the way back to Abraham, Genesis uh, 17. Now, why on earth would this arise in discussions about what Christians ought to do? I want to say at this point, um, though I am going to be disagreeing with the, the claim that Christians should do this as a matter of Christian faithfulness or religious observance, I'm going to be disagreeing with that. I do want to say that the fact that the question arises reflects an entirely right and good instinct. That is the instinct to take seriously the whole of the word of God and to ask, how does every word, every chapter, every book of scripture apply to us today? So if somebody's reading through the Bible and earnestly and faithfully bearing in mind that Jesus says that not a single 
letter or a stroke of a pen shall drop away from the law until everything's been accomplished. And uh, the law is a guide for life as well as a picture of Christ and uh, a picture of our own unfaithfulness. The law is there to guide us. Every page of scripture is relevant to us. I'm not surprised and indeed I'm quite encouraged that some people might come to Leviticus 12 and think, whoa, hold on a second. Um, Maybe this is something that we ought to actually be doing as Christians. Isn't it the case maybe that this, we, we should uh, encourage uh, women who've given birth to um, not enter the sanctuary for a period of time, not come to worship for a period of time? Uh, to, and maybe if we have a male child, should we not circumcise the child because, look, the Bible says so. Right. Well, let's just press pause for one second. And let me just state the uh, basic outline of the position that I want to argue for, and then we'll go into some of the detail. First up... In my view, there is clearly no biblically warranted or theologically grounded reason for circumcising male children or for insisting on a period of ritual purification for mothers after giving birth to a child, for Christians or for anybody else under the new covenant. There's no reason why Christians should do that as a religious duty as an act of Christian faithfulness. I'll come to explain this in a few minutes time but in short though the whole of the Old Testament law is relevant to us today it's not relevant to us all in the same way and different aspects of it are relevant not by our being under them and seeking to do exactly what they did back then but rather that they inform us about the change that Christ has introduced with the introduction of the new covenant. So there's no, let me say it again, there's no reason why as a matter of Christian faithfulness it would be right or necessary for Christian boys to be circumcised or for Christian mothers to undergo this period of purification after birth. I'm going to dig into that a little bit in a few minutes time and explain why. But before we do that I do need to comment on what I'm not saying. I'm not making any comment here about medical justifications for any treatments of any kind to a child or to a mother. Uh, The medical justification for any surgical or uh, any other kind of treatment or any other uh, post-birth recovery regime that a a clinician might recommend to a mother or anything like that, I'm not going to speak to at all. I'm simply going to say that the justification given there is nothing to do with what the Bible says and mustn't be confused with it. So let me speak crudely a little bit, or not crudely, hopefully, bluntly. If a doctor recommends for medical reasons that you should circumcise uh, a newborn boy, I'm not going to get my hands involved in that discussion. I'm simply going to want to encourage you to not conflate the medical justification for that with any kind of Christian or biblical or religious quote-unquote justification for it. The medical justification must stand on its own terms. I'll make one brief comment about um, medical practices in different parts of the world. I, I know that in certain parts of the United States it's quite common for some clinicians to recommend for health reasons that boys be circumcised. Like I said, I'm not going to comment on that, except to say that simply as a matter of uh, 
historical and empirical fact that isn't the case everywhere and hasn't always been the case everywhere in uh, advanced uh, countries where medical procedures can be conducted in a kind of safe and sterile way it's still not the case that everywhere circumcision is recommended uh, now what that means practically speaking is that I would give you the same advice that I'd give anybody in these circumstances which is if you get um uh, advice from a doctor, at least consider getting a second opinion from a doctor that might see things differently and try and engage in that debate as much as you can given the expertise that you have. So you're making as a, a judgment that's as informed as it can possibly be. You will know that the medical establishment, like every other uh, profession, is subject to a certain extent to whims and fads and fashions. Uh, there was a time in England where if a child had a uh, moderate sore throat, the first thing that doctors would recommend is that we take the tonsils out because that's probably going to cause the problem or it might be causing the problem or it might be a cause of future problems in fu uh, uh, down the line. Well, turns out that that procedure, though fashionable for many decades, was actually quite damaging because the tonsils are not a kind of redundant little pair of organs sitting at the back of your throat. They actually do all kinds of useful things connected, I think, with immune response and so on and so forth. So children who had that surgery done, and I have many friends at my age who were at school when this was fashionable, um, when we were young, those kids would get that done. That actually did harm in the long run to some of them because the procedure wasn't a kind of benign, helpful, preventative procedure that didn't have any downsides. It turned out subsequently that it does have downsides. Now, I'm not going to try and speak to the medical um, issues, but I would want to encourage anybody who's yeah, I've got a newborn baby boy. Before you um, rush ahead with um, circumcision on the advice of one doctor, please consider at least getting a second opinion because it might cost you a little bit, but it might be worthwhile just to give you a fuller picture of what it is you're doing. So that's the medical side of things. Uh, let me say something similar about, um, let's say a, um, a woman has given birth and every childbirth is different. Um, uh, a doctor might recommend a period of rest, let's say, after a caesarean section or after a particularly uh, traumatic natural birth, um, that might mean that mum doesn't come to church for a few weeks. Absolutely fine. I'm not going to intrude on that kind of medical judgment. And if you have like a, a, a nurse or a physiotherapist or something who's recommending you follow a certain regime of physical rehabilitation, then you go right ahead and don't let me be heard to be saying you shouldn't do that. All I want to say though is let's not confuse that medical advice with the instructions here in Leviticus to stay at home for 33 days right? not enter the sanctuary. The reason you're doing it is for the medical reasons. Two thumbs up for me provided the medical advice is good. It's not because this is in some sense a fulfillment of Leviticus 12. Just one other tangentially related point to the medical um, issue. Uh, sometimes, in truth, the reason why we adopt certain medical conventions is just because it's traditional for us. You might have come from a family background in which uh, you just didn't take antibiotics. And so, well, you just don't take antibiotics because that's like just traditionally what you did. You may have come from a uh, background in which, well, you know, you're dad and your granddad and you yourself were, if you're a man, you were circumcised. And so it's kind of natural for you to apply the same uh, protocol to any sons the Lord might bless you with. And I'd want to say, 
okay, fine, but that's not a very good medical justification, right? Uh, there is, uh, before going ahead with a medical procedure, we ought to have a medical justification for doing so and not merely a traditional one. So if the reason why you're um, contemplating this surgery for a newborn boy, for example, is just because you and your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather were all circumcised as because that was the medical advice at the time. Well, the medical advice might have changed, and I think it's wise for us at least to be aware of that. Okay, so there's a bunch of things there to do with the medical stuff. Let me just shunt that off to the side now and talk for a little bit about the Christian uh, biblical framework within which we ought to make sense of this teaching. So I want to uh, explore and defend the claim that I summarized a few minutes ago, which is that there's no biblical warrant for thinking that either we should circumcise our boys or that we should observe a period of uh, ritual cleansing or purification for mothers after having given birth along the lines of Leviticus 12. I have some sympathy with the instinct that it must be relevant in some way, and indeed it is relevant in some way, but it's not relevant in the way that, let's say, the fifth commandment is relevant or the seventh commandment is relevant. Those commandments are relevant to us because we must do what they say. These commandments are relevant to us in a different way. Broadly speaking, uh, these commandments fall into a category of uh, Old Testament instructions which were designed to maintain and articulate a distinctive way of life for the people of Israel in contrast with all the other nations of the world, which reflected the fact that God was present with them in a particular way, in a particular place, at a particular time. So there were numerous laws which were connected with the worship of God at the tabernacle, laws for ordination of priests, laws for sacrifices. Then there were laws which were connected with the fact that there, is, there was in Israel a geographically graded structure of regions of holiness. You can think of it as a Imagine a dartboard. Right at the centre of the dartboard is the Holy of Holies in the centre of the tabernacle or the temple. And then next out is the, the, the holy place in the tabernacle, then the court of the tabernacle, then the land of uh, Israel, or perhaps the holy city, Jerusalem, then the land of Israel, then the Gentile world. You've got this system of uh, concentric rings of gradually decreasing holiness. And the way that that holiness was conceived of as functioning within the life of Israel was, well, you're not supposed to bring unholy stuff from the outside in towards the center. So there are numerous ceremonial ways in which the holiness of the people of God was to be expressed. And one such ceremonial way was in certain uh, restrictions on bringing close to the sanctuary um, people who are bleeding, people who have uh, open wounds in their skin, people who have leprosy, people who have other kind of skin lesions and so on. Now what's going on there, behind those laws about holiness and cleanliness, is the doctrine of creation. So keep tracking with me, you've got um, a period of time during which uh, the Lord relates to Israel specifically as a little island of holiness uh, in the midst of a sea of 
uh, unholiness in the Gentile nations around. Why would the Lord express holiness in this way? The answer goes back to the doctrine of creation, where what God is doing is separating things from each other. So he separates light from darkness, separates the waters above from the waters below, separates the sea from the dry land, distinguishes between man and woman, between different kind of animals and gives them different names and so on. So the narrative of creation in Genesis 1 especially is a narrative that distinguishes between things. And so in Israel, one of the things that the people of Israel are supposed to do is to ceremonially and ritually depict that good creational separation between things. So for example, you keep different kinds of cloth separate and don't mix them in the same garment. You keep different kind of seeds separate, don't mix them in the same field. It's not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with polyester cotton shirts or um, uh, wheat and barley in the same field. It's that it's a ceremonial picture of the created goodness that is manifested by separating things. And Israel does this distinctively so as to ritually distinguish itself from the rest of the sea of unholiness around it. So what's with all the blood and uh, ritual purifications after childbirth and so on and so forth? Well, one kind of separation that God makes in creation is connected with the integrity of the human body itself. What God does is, so to speak, separate out the human body and its contents from the world around it. Just think about how God made Adam in particular. What he did was to get the dust of the ground and scoop it together and make it into a person. And what he's done is he's created this envelope of skin around a body of flesh, breathed life into it. And this man is now separated from the land from which he was made. So you can see even in humanity itself, this separatedness from the rest of the created order is manifested. So what happens when, let's suppose a person has leprosy or a boil or a skin lesion that goes very deep or some other emission like semen or menstrual blood or the blood that is produced during childbirth? Well, what's happening in all those cases is, put simply, something that's on the inside of the human body is leaking out. And so ceremonially within that framework where the integrity of the human person is a, a picture of created separateness, what's happening ritually when somebody bleeds or when somebody has a skin lesion or uh, an emission of semen or uh, menstrual blood or blood during childbirth, what's happening is that that boundary is being broken. The distinction is being broken down. What's on the inside is, so to speak, coming out. So within the symbolism of what makes Israel holy, you've got here a picture of ritual, not moral, but ritual unholiness. So what do you need to do with that? Well, what you do is you, you keep it away from the sanctuary until it's been purified. And so you look in Leviticus, you've got all these laws, not just for purification after childbirth and menstruation, but also after an emission of semen nocturnally or... Um, 
some kind of boils uh, or leprosy or other skin lesions, and those are very common in the ancient world, both because of hygiene issues uh, and also because of all the dust and grit and the fact that people work with their hands a lot and they didn't have um, uh, high-quality antibiotics and the kind of treatments that we now have for skin diseases and so on and so forth. So, all right, what's happening then, just to summarise what we've got so far, with this um, purification after childbirth uh, legislation in Leviticus. This is an example of what the people of Israel are to do to remedy a situation where their ceremonial or ritual holiness is impaired. And what impairs it is the breaking down of boundaries between things that God separated in creation. And so it actually belongs in the same category as all those other ritual uh, commands like um, separating uh, fields with different seed in it, keeping uh, fabric separate in different clothes and so on and so forth. So it makes complete sense within this world in which the people of Israel have at their heart a geographically focused locus of God's holiness. And they're given these laws to represent and reflect the holiness of God in contradistinction from the Gentile world all around them. Holiness is confined, and the world around them is unholy. And of course, what happens if you bring the unholiness in is that you pollute the holy centre, and you mustn't do that, hence all these laws. Okay. Now, what happens then with the coming of Christ? Well, a couple of things happen. First, the sanctuary, which was previously located geographically in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, is now moved. The sanctuary is located in heaven, not on earth. So we still have a holy place, we still worship God in a sanctuary, but we do so by faith, lifting up our hearts to the holy place in our gathered worship, so that the true sanctuary, as Hebrews will put it, is set up in heaven, not here on earth. So you don't any longer have on earth this kind of series of concentric rings of geographically located holiness or increasing holiness at the center and decre decreasing holiness as you go further out because the sanctuary isn't located on earth anymore it's not in jerusalem it's in heaven related to that second and this is the kind of thing you find both in hebrews and also in ephesians very very clearly in ephesians is that the geographical and ethnic distinctiveness of the old covenant people of israel is done away with of course, there are other intertwined themes here, but the distinctiveness of Israel was related to the old covenant distinctiveness of the land. And therefore, the, the two kind of go hand in hand. As the sanctuary is moved upstairs to heaven, so Israel loses her distinctive role as a geographic and to a certain extent ethnically defined community of people who are special in relation to the rest of the world. Now, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, as Paul says, and you get this kind of thing in Galatians especially, and also in Romans. We're all on the same low level playing field in relation to God. We all need to come to the true sanctuary set up in heaven through the one priest, through his one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one priest has replaced all the other sacrificing priests of the old covenant. That one uh, sacrifice has replaced all the other sacrifices of the old covenant that one sanctuary has replaced israel's sanctuary which existed under the old covenant 
by the way, just parenthetically, now you can see why the overthrow and destruction of the temple in uh, AD 70 was so salvation historically significant. It was the moment, the final moment at which that old covenant sanctuary was done away with, so as to confirm that now there's only one true sanctuary in heaven where we may access the living God. And so it's in connection with that that the Old Testament laws, which once existed to reinforce and draw attention to this geographically and ethnically graded structure of holiness between Israel and the rest of the world. Those laws are now done away with precisely because that graded structure no longer exists. And now then, instead of there being this risk that the unholiness of the world pollutes the sanctuary, what actually happens is that the holiness of the people of God spreads out across the world and purifies the land's of the nations wherever it goes. You see this very clearly actually in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, where if you think previously you'd bring unholy stuff into the temple and pollute it, that's what happened earlier in Ezekiel's prophecies. But by the time you get to Ezekiel um, 47, you've got this vision of the new temple, which is the temple that Jesus is building in his own body and is now exists in heaven, from which the living water flows out uh, into the world. And everywhere it goes, it purifies what it encounters. So it even purifies the salty and dead waters of the Dead Sea so that things can live there. So there's this reversal in the way that holiness works. It happened with Jesus when um, the woman with an issue of blood touched uh, uh, Jesus and her, the flow of blood stopped. Well, normally what would happen is she would become, she, uh, she would make him unclean. In fact, what happened was that um, he made her clean. In the same way, um, you get the way that Jesus cleanses lepers by touching uh, him under the old covenant the unholiness would spread to him under the new covenant the holiness spreads from him now what all this means then is that those laws like leviticus 12 which are focused on the distinctive holiness of old covenant israel as a political and social and religious entity are done away with and so we f we show our reverence for christ precisely by not obeying them as once they were obeyed this is the important point to grasp it's not that we're becoming all slack with the old testament law and we don't really care about it quite the contrary we do care about it we care about it so much that we exalt christ by not maintaining these distinctions because by not maintaining these distinctions we show what it is that christ has done that's so glorious and wonderful in opening up the gospel fully to all the nations of the world so we may all worship him as he's enthroned in heaven this, of course, is the same rationale for the passing away of circumcision. And you can read all about this most, in most detail in the book of Galatians. Uh, the, the problem with circumcision now as a, a religious act of devotion to the Lord is that it's trying to turn the clock back. It's as though you're saying, well, I want to perform this act of devotion to the Lord which is equivalent to saying, I want to go back to the time before Jesus came. It's actually a denigration of the work of Christ to embrace circumcision for our baby boys as an act of religious devotion, because we're misconstruing the time we're in. We're in the time where that mark of distinctive ethnic Israelite religious identity 
no longer exists. And to claim that it exists is equivalent to claiming that Christ hasn't done anything, which is why Paul says in Galatians, he doesn't say, get circumcised if you like, because it doesn't mean anything. He says, yeah, jolly well does mean something. And if you're doing it as an act of religious devotion, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So you can start to see how these um, issues all fit together and how, just to summarize the point I made at the beginning, though there may be medical reasons for all kinds of post-birth treatments, uh, rehab uh, regimens for uh, wives, especially mothers who've, who've given birth. There may be all kinds of things, rest periods and then exercises and so on and so forth that you may be encouraged to do. Do not please get those medical justifications entangled with the distinctively ritual uh, uh, religious, so to speak, justifications for these rights under the Old Covenant. To do that would be to make a big mistake and actually to, it would be to uh, undermine the work of Christ and to diminish what he's done. Okay, now that may provoke one or two further questions, um, and if it does, that's wonderful. Please don't hesitate to uh, shoot them my way, but for now I think uh, that'll do us. Thanks for joining us again this week. God bless, and bye for now. Thank you.